This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 129th edition of the program. Today is February 1st of 2018, and before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank Ali Gonzalez-Perez, Anthony L., Ben Broach, Marin Gondiri, Moises Estrada, Sean Lynch, and Warren Fry, all for signing up to support us either through Patreon or PayPal. If you'd also like to support the Humanist Report, you could visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, Bernie is getting the band back together for another potential presidential run. Will Democrats give him a fair shot is the question. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about how the Democratic Party is shunning progressives across the country. Also, AT&T launches a devious campaign against net neutrality while simultaneously pretending to be in favor of net neutrality. And California may become the very first state to pass legislation protecting net neutrality. Also, Bill Maher, a member of the so-called resistance, admits that he actually agrees with Donald Trump on one of his most harmful policies. A billionaire pretends to care about workers and argues that cutting his taxes somehow helps them. I'll also tell you why the government might shut down again a couple days into this new month. And I'll tell you about pro-corporate establishment Democrats that are now challenging Amy Valela. And finally, I'll actually speak to Amy Valela and she'll provide us with an update to her campaign. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's show. Let's waste no time and jump right in because we've got a lot to talk about. Hopefully you guys enjoy the episode. So late last week, we got some good news regarding the 2020 presidential election. It seems very likely that Bernie Sanders is gearing up for another run at the White House. So according to Gabrielle De Benedetti of Politico, Bernie Sanders convened his top political advisors in Washington on Saturday for a planning meeting that included a discussion of the feasibility and shape of a possible 2020 presidential campaign. Half a dozen senior Democrats familiar with the gathering confirmed to Politico. Along with Sanders, participants in the meeting included Weaver and Sanders' wife, Jane, called in on the phone. Nina Turner, the Ohio state senator turned president of Our Revolution, Sanders' post-campaign political organization, was there too. Now, Bernie still maintains that he hasn't made an official decision, but what he has said with regard to this meeting is that if he does decide to run, he wants to make sure that he hits the ground running. Now, he also said this about what a candidate should represent if they do decide to get into the race. Whoever runs for president has got to focus on the needs of workers, be prepared to stand up to the 1% and create an economy that in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world addresses the issues of poverty and health care and education. So in other words, if nobody in the Democratic Party is going to step up to the plate and do those things, then yes, he will run. Now, back in 2015, Bernie was saying similar things prior to announcing his run. And since Hillary Clinton obviously had effectively monopolized the Democratic primary, he decided to throw his hat in the race and give progressives an actual choice. And seeing that 
the Democratic Party is still corrupt and will undoubtedly still be corrupt by 2020, well, a Bernie Sanders presidential campaign is almost a near certainty at that point. So I think that as progressives, we should all expect him to run. But a really important component to this conversation that I think we should be having is how will the Democratic Party establishment react to Bernie Sanders running? Because we already know that they don't want him to run. Bernie Sanders is someone who they rigged the primary against in 2016, and they have yet to earn our trust back. So the question is, if Bernie Sanders decides to run, will the Democratic Party give him a fair shake? And I think the answer, obviously, is no. Not only are state parties creating barriers for progressives across the country, but they're also already doing what they can to sway the 2020 Democratic Party primaries in favor of establishment Democrats. So, for example, last year, California decided to move their primary up in March in order to give their state senator, Kamala Harris, an advantage over Bernie Sanders. And if she gets off to an early lead, that could change the outcome of the entire primary. That's why they did it. Now, additionally, when it comes to DNC Chairman Tom Perez, even though he's claiming that he'll set the debate schedule ahead of any primaries, we already know that he hates progressives. He just purged progressives from the DNC last year. Now, additionally, even if the DNC itself doesn't deliberately try to sabotage Bernie's campaign in the same way that Debbie Wasserman Schultz did in 2016, we already know that state parties will play their part in making sure the circumstances favor anyone but Bernie Sanders. So in other words, they're probably going to be doing everything they can to make sure that Bernie Sanders is defeated. Now, they may not be as brazen this time. They may try to be more subtle in sabotaging Bernie Sanders, but make no mistake about it. They want to make sure that Bernie Sanders does not become the Democratic Party's nominee. So what do we do as progressives? How do we respond? Well, like Bernie Sanders, since he's also trying to hit the ground running, we got to make sure that we hit the ground running as well. So as soon as Bernie Sanders announces his campaign, we donate money to him. Even if it's just a dollar, we donate to his campaign. We buy merchandise, shirts. We make sure that we spread the word fast. And most importantly, we remain hypersensitive to anything the DNC, the DCCC, or state Democratic parties do. Because we know they have a vested interest in making sure an establishment Democrat wins. Because if Bernie Sanders wins... That could facilitate an exodus of high-dollar donors from the party, which would cause a major upset to the status quo in D.C., and they don't want that. They're going to try to stop Bernie Sanders, and we have to make sure that we're ready for any shenanigans they inevitably try to pull out. And again, I think it's important to reiterate that the party hasn't earned our trust back. What was it that they said last year? The DNC's attorneys literally said during the DNC fraud lawsuit that if they really wanted to... They can get behind a closed door with cigars and just unilaterally decide who the Democratic Party nominee is. They haven't earned our trust back. We know what they don't want. It's very clear that they resent progressives like Bernie Sanders and us, and they want to make sure that Bernie doesn't win. So we have to make sure that they know we're not accepting anything but a fair fight. We're not asking them to rig it in favor of Bernie Sanders. We're asking for a fair fight, something we did not get last time. And this time, Bernie Sanders has to make sure that if it's not fair, he threatens immediately to run as a third-party candidate. Because that's what Trump did 
in 2016 when it seemed as though the Republican Party wanted to rig it against him. But he said, if you play dirty, I play dirty too. And that stopped them from rigging the primaries against Donald Trump effectively. But Democrats, they have a lot more ways of rigging the primaries than Republicans do. So, for example, Democrats have superdelegates. The RNC, the Republican Party, doesn't have that. So there are more stops that Democrats can pull out to stop Bernie Sanders from winning. But we need to make sure that we make our message clear. Don't fuck with us in 2020. We want a fair fight. We deserve a fair fight. And this is a democracy. So we should have a fair fight. We don't go into this naively. The Democratic Party doesn't want Bernie to win. And chances are they're going to try to rig it against him. So we have to be especially vigilant in 2020 because this is our chance to defeat Donald Trump. And we can't allow Democrats to ruin it for us all. The Intercept recently published an article by Lee Fang and Ryan Grimm that demonstrates how the Democratic Party puts up these barriers to progressives that they think aren't electorally viable, and we also learned why it's the case that the party continuously shuns progressives. It's because their reason for supporting candidates isn't based on policy at all. It's entirely contingent on the amount of money they think candidates will be able to raise in their election and for the party. So, just before we get into the article, this becomes clear as to why the party focuses so much on platitudes. It's because they stand for nothing. The only thing they care about is raising money from their donors, and they don't care who those donors are. So getting into the article, Ryan Grimm and Lee Fang state, the way to win party support is to pass the phone test. In order to establish whether a person is worthy of official backing, DCCC operatives will, quote, Rolodex a candidate, according to a source familiar with the procedure. On the most basic level, it involves candidates being asked to pull out their smartphones, scroll through their contact lists, and add up the amount of money their contacts could raise or contribute to their campaigns. If the candidate's contacts aren't good for at least $250,000 or in some cases much more, they fail the test and party support goes elsewhere. And that paragraph right there shows you just how greedy the Democratic Party establishment is. Because do you think that grassroots candidates will be able to to easily do something like this? Of course not. They're raising small dollar donations. The only candidates that will actually be able to do this and pass this test are the ones that are completely sold out and beholden to multinational corporations and billionaires. Hillary Clinton's, the Kamala Harris's, the Debbie Wasserman Schultz's, the Cory Booker's. That's who can pass these tests. But focusing so much on money isn't a new phenomenon for the Democratic Party or DCCC because back when Rahm Emanuel ran the DCCC, he, quote, looked for wealthy candidates who could self-fund a race. So basically, if you can't raise a ton of money, if you don't have a super PAC, the DCCC and Democratic Party establishment, they think you're not viable, and then they decide not to endorse you. They go with someone who can actually raise money. And in this article, they provide you with numerous examples that illustrate exactly how focused the party really is on money. Now, the question is, how can you tell which candidate the establishment is backing if they're ostensibly remaining neutral throughout primaries? Well, the simultaneous announcement of endorsements from the top elected officials in the party is a way to send a signal that the party has chosen its candidate. So if one Democrat's leadership pack 
decides to endorse a particular candidate in a primary or donate to their campaign, then usually Democrat organizations like Emily's List will follow suit and announce their endorsements the very same day. So that's a way you can determine who the establishment by and large is supporting. Now, Ryan Grimm and Lee Fang actually conducted a qualitative analysis about races, and this is what they found. In what is perhaps the crux of the issue, the Democratic Party machinery can effectively shut alternative candidates out before they can even get started. I think that that's really important, so I'm going to reiterate what that line just said. The Democratic Party machinery can effectively shut alternative candidates out before they even get started. This is why there are so few progressives in Congress. I mean, you could basically count them on your hand. We have Tulsi Gabbard, Ro Khanna. I guess Keith Ellison, maybe? He's iffy. I mean, there are so few progressives in Congress because the Democratic Party doesn't want them in Congress because they don't want progressives who aren't going to raise money from multi-billion dollar companies and billionaires. So, I want to take you through a couple of the examples that show exactly how the DCCC and aggregate party establishment shuts out progressives. So, when it comes to Jess King, she's a progressive running to represent the 16th Congressional District of Pennsylvania. Now, after trying to obtain endorsements from Democratic Party organizations like Emily's List, the Democratic Party establishment, by and large, has decided to instead shun her in favor of a corporate Democrat named Christina Hartman, who actually ran back in 2016. Now, when she she ran in 2016, she broke fundraising records and ended up performing worse than Hillary Clinton in her district. But now that Hartman has decided to run again, even though she lost after raising a record-breaking number of money, the establishment is supporting her over a progressive like Jess King, specifically because Christina Hartman can raise more money. Now, there's also a school teacher named Karen Mallard who decided to run for Congress to represent Virginia's second congressional district. She originally met with a representative from Emily's List who promised to put her in contact with the DCCC. Instead, she was shunned. And then what happens next is perhaps as surprising as the Jess King story. So they endorsed someone who got into the race presumably to make sure that the progressive candidate, Karen Maller, didn't win. And the party endorsed that individual, their selected choice. That person dropped out. They still didn't endorse Karen. So another person got in, dropped out, and they still didn't endorse Karen when it was left wide open and she was the one candidate in the race. So finally, they ended up recruiting someone else named Elaine Luria because they were more confident that Elaine could actually raise more money than Karen. And when it comes to Emily's list, even though they seemed enthusiastic about Karen's campaign, they decided to only help out Mallard by handing her a list of consultants that she could hire. That's it. Now, as Karen states in the article here, she's a school teacher. She doesn't have money to hire consultants who charge millions of dollars each year. That's all Emily's list was doing. Now, there's other examples. Jack Love decided to run to represent the 3rd District of Nevada and reached out to the state Democratic Party office, but they shunned him. Surprise, surprise. Instead, the DCCC decided to back Susan Lee, who also has the endorsement of Harry Reid, who, even though he's retired, is still very prominent in Nevadan politics. And they decided to back Susan Lee because, for the most part, she's able to fund her own campaign because she's married to a wealthy casino executive. Now, we also have James Thompson, who's running once again to represent 
District 4 of Kansas, and he says the DCCC doesn't think that district is winnable at all, and they're deciding to stay out of this race and unilaterally disarm even though James Thompson was just 7,500 votes away from winning last time. A lot of people are talking about how 2018 could potentially be a blue wave election, but yet they're choosing to not even pursue this district. But Thompson actually doesn't seem to mind because he says he doesn't want the DCCC support because what that support entails is problematic. They require him to commit to arbitrary rules where you don't say anything negative about your primary opponent, and they also force candidates to spend money on TV ads where that would not be effective. Now, there's also another district, the second district of Nebraska, where the DCCC and other Democratic organizations fell over themselves to endorse a Democrat named Brad Ashford with a very conservative voting record. In fact, one of the most conservative voting records during his time in office, because he was in office before. So a progressive named Kara Eastman is also running in that district, and even though she was told by the DCCC that they would remain neutral, well, they chose a side. They want Brad Ashford to take over that seat, a conservative Democrat. And last but not least, in the 21st District of Texas, congressional Democrats have endorsed a former Republican, Joseph Kopser, over a progressive like Derek Crow, since, surprise, surprise, Kopser raised more money. This is the Democratic Party. And... Those aren't the only examples. The article is very long. There's a ton of examples that really go into great detail about how the party is hyper-focused on money. That's all they care about. They don't care about policy at all. If you can raise a lot of money, and we're talking a lot of money, they'll back you. And most of the time, they want you to have connections with big donors because that's how you raise money quickly. You see... If you raise money exclusively through grassroots methods, that's going to take some time. You could put out the call and say, hey, I need some support, you know, donate $27 if you can to my campaign, a dollar. But, I mean, that's a gradual buildup of money. They want money fast. That's why they shun progressives. It's clear now. This article really lays it out in great detail. And it just shows that the party is rotten to the core. But Democratic Party officials are not by nature moved to deep reflection by election losses. They have a plan and they're sticking to it. The bad news for grassroots activists is that the Democratic Party's leaders cannot be reasoned with, but they can be beaten. And that's exactly what we have to do. We have to beat them. Now, this article doesn't talk about candidates like Amy Valela, but Ruben Kiwin who was the incumbent Democrat, was being challenged by a progressive like Amy Valela. The race was wide open once Kiwin announced that he would not be seeking re-election due to sexual harassment allegations that surfaced against him. And all of a sudden, these establishment figures jump into the race. Because you can't have a grassroots-funded candidate ever win, because if they get into Congress, what's going to happen? Well, they're still going to raise money through grassroots methods, and that's not good for the aggregate party. They want prolific fundraisers like Nancy Pelosi who could get in there and raise millions of dollars not only for themselves, but for the rest of the party. I mean, how do you think you advance to a leadership role in the party in the first place? You've got to raise a lot of money. That's what it's all about. It's always been about the money. So we have to beat them, and we have to purge the party of these corporatists. Because so long as the party relies on exclusively on money to determine who is viable 
then the party is not going to represent us. They're going to represent those donors because they want more money. It's going to be a self-perpetuating cycle until we get in there like a wrecking ball and break up the establishment, that status quo, and we do things our way. We run based on policy. This article is its just huge. I would highly recommend that you read it thoroughly because I, I barely scratched the surface and there's a lot in there that really explains just how corrupt the Democratic Party is. Members of the so-called Democratic Party resistance haven't shown that they've been very successful or effective at all at resisting Donald Trump or the Republicans, but they're really great at resisting progressives. They've shown this time and again, and we have yet another example as to how the Democratic Party establishment is trying to embolden establishment candidates in an effort to shun progressives. So after corporate Democrat Ruben Keewen of Nevada's 4th Congressional District announced that he would not be seeking re-election in 2018 after sexual harassment allegations came to light, his progressive challenger, Amy Valela, and only primary opponent, automatically became the presumptive Democratic Party nominee in that district until, however, the Democratic Party establishment predictably decided to do what they do best. And all of a sudden, establishment Democrats that are prominent in Nevadan politics decided to throw their hats in the race. It's kind of the same way as to how Keith Ellison was gaining a lot of momentum uh, to be the DNC chairman and... Tom Perez just decided to suddenly jump into the race in order to stop Keith Ellison from winning. Now, as you all know, Tom Perez didn't necessarily decide to run on his own accord, but instead was influenced to run by President Obama. And we all know how that turned out. It turns out the establishment voted for the establishment, and he did become the DNC chairman. So even though we don't have evidence that that's necessarily happening here, it seems as though the establishment in Nevada didn't really like the idea of Amy Valela running because Amy Valela she probably wouldn't be too good for the Democratic Party's donors. I mean, she's in favor of Medicare for all. The health insurance industry donors that the Democratic Party have, that probably terrifies them. So the establishment in Nevada probably decided to push other candidates in the race just to make sure that Amy Valela isn't the only one running and doesn't win. So who is now running against Amy Valela? Well, she has two primary opponents that are more prominent, but the first one I want to talk about is Stephen Horsford. So Stephen actually represented Nevada's 4th Congressional District before, but his constituents apparently weren't too fond of him, seeing that he was actually voted out of office after just one term, losing to Republican Crescent Hardy. And after he lost, he then decided to move to Washington, D.C., where he became a lobbyist. And now that that seat is open, again, he decided to throw his hat back into the race after previously losing. Now, even though his constituents clearly weren't satisfied with him since he lost, well, of course, since Amy Valela became the favorite, he had to jump into the race to make sure that a progressive doesn't win that seat. But I mean, realistically speaking, he can't just be running to prevent Amy Valela from winning, right? Well, of course, that's probably not the case. So what is it that he stands for? Well, when it comes to policy, we don't really know what he stands for because he hasn't voiced the policies that he supports. In fact, in his campaign announcement ad, he basically just says that he's running because he's against Trump. And I'm not exaggerating. Like so many other people, I'm disgusted uh, with Donald Trump, with the Republicans in Congress, and their reckless agenda. They have voted to take away health care for millions of Americans. They've passed this tax scheme that only benefits the richest. And they have 
begun to strip away at our basic civic and human rights. Enough is enough. It's going to take all of us to make government work for all of us. So let's get to work. I'm disgusted uh, with Donald Trump. So obviously, there wasn't much of anything there about policy. So, I mean, he can't possibly be running just because he opposes Donald Trump, even though it seems that way, and also because he doesn't want Amy Valeria to win. I mean, so what, why is it that he jumped into the race? What's the point of Stephen Horsford running? Well, he recently told the Nevada Independent, quote, I'm not running against anyone in the primary. I'm running for the district, he said. Okay, well, that's fantastic. So what exactly does he stand for? Well, as the Nevada Independent explains, he said he supports impeaching Trump, citing his erratic behavior and the role that he and others in his campaign appear to have played in collusion with Russia to influence our election. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why the, the people of Nevada's 4th Congressional District voted him out of office after just one term. It's almost as if voters are smart and they knew that he was bullshitting them. But look, even though we have just this one ad and this article doesn't state his policy positions, clearly there's got to be more, right? Well, actually... No. When you check out Steven's website, which is the main hub for his campaign, where all the information should be, it's clear that there's not much going on here either. And when you click on the About Steven page, you see that he stands for, quote, responsibility and perseverance, expanding opportunity, winning the tough fights, and running a small business. And then he has a sign-up page. And that's literally it. So by looking at Steven's website or listening to him speak, it's really difficult to discern what he stands for, and why he decided to run at all. But one way, one metric that you can always use to gauge what a politician stands for is to look at their donor list. And when you look at Stephen's list of 2014 donors, well, I completely understand why he was kicked out of Congress after just one term. His donors in 2014 alone included MGM Resorts International. They contributed 10000 to his super PAC, the National Association of Realtors, the American Bankers Association, Comcast, I wonder where he stands on net neutrality. McDonald's, I wonder how hard he's going to be fighting for a $15 minimum wage for fast food workers. Capital One, Cox Enterprises, Home Depot, Walmart, AT&T, Lockheed Martin, so he's also being bankrolled by the military industrial complex. Citigroup, Verizon, I bet a Jeep Pie is going to love Stephen Horsford. Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan Chase, American Express, and more. So by looking at that, you know exactly who Steven's going to be fighting for. It's not going to be the people of Nevada's 4th Congressional District. It's going to be his donors, defense contractors, big banks, internet service providers that are against net neutrality like Verizon, Cox, and AT&T. So, I don't know why he decided to run. And Steven was so brazen about his corruption as a state senator that he literally had to rescind a letter he wrote to potential donors promising them a dinner with him if they donated between $10,000 and $25,000. And if his shameless corruption wasn't enough, well, there's also this. Quote, Horsford-led IFC may have illegally plundered millions from college savings plan. So that's who decided to throw their hat into the race, presumably to stop Amy Vallejo from winning.
someone who is brazenly beholden to his financial contributors because he doesn't stand for anything clearly all he has is uh i'm like against trump i'm disgusted uh with donald trump so what do you stand for well clearly the establishment loves you because you raise a lot of money and you were sent there to stop Amy Valela from winning. Now, if I'm incorrect here and I'm jumping to conclusions, then prove me wrong. Make sure that when you run this time, you don't have a super PAC and you don't take financial contributions from large multinational corporations and billionaires and also from the banks that crash the economy. Prove me wrong. Do you think he's going to do it? I don't think so. But Stephen isn't the only one who decided to suddenly get into the race, presumably to stop Amy Valela from winning. Another individual that just announced her candidacy is Pat Spearman, or as I like to call her, Platitude Pat, and you'll see why I call her that in a minute. She's actually been a state senator for quite some time, and a lot of progressives actually feel alienated by her because she aligned herself with the neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party. In fact, after she gave a speech at the 2016 Democratic National Convention, some progressives actually allege that she threw shade at Bernie Sanders' delegates and refused to speak with them when they requested it. And this makes sense, especially when you look at her Twitter feed, because it looks like a typical Clintonista Twitter feed that's just littered with retweets about Hillary Clinton and retweets from Hillary Clinton and also Obama worship. So those are the typical characteristics you see from a typical Hillary Clinton loyalist. But that's fine. That doesn't really tell us much about Pat Spearman. But what we can learn from Pat Spearman is what she's deciding to run on. Now, although she doesn't have a campaign announcement video yet, she actually just spoke at the Women's March. So if we look at her speech, maybe we can learn a little bit about Pat Spearman. And one thing that I did learn is that there's no doubt that she is one of the most charismatic speakers I've seen in a long time. She's great at speaking. The problem is that even though she's saying something in a way that sounds important, really what she's saying completely lacks substance. So her speech was about 11 minutes. You can you can watch it yourself at the link down below. Um, this is basically what she talked about in a nutshell. I need you to turn to two people and say, we are the resistance. The resistance. Resisting. Resisting. The resistance. Resistance. The resistance. Rise up. Resist the resistance. All the resistance. Accessible and affordable health care. The resistance. The resistance. The resistance. Resistance. Me too. The resistance. The resistance. Me too. Resist the resistance. The resistance. The resistance. Resistance. The resistance. Human rights. Reproductive rights. Workers' rights to earn a living wage. Women's rights. Codified in the U.S. Constitution, the resistance, resistance, stronger together, and we are the resistance. Resistors, resistors, resistors. When they go low, we go high. Stronger together. Thank you. God bless you, and God bless the great state of Nevada. Now, you might have missed it. She did briefly mention healthcare. She said she wants accessible and affordable healthcare, but that is essentially code for. Anything but Medicare for all. Whenever we hear a Democrat talk about accessible and affordable health care, they mean not Medicare for all. Other policies she talked about include, quote, human rights, reproductive rights, workers' rights to earn a living wage, that's good, and women's rights codified in the U.S. Constitution. That's great, but that's the only set of policies she brought up in a nearly 11-minute speech 
And this speech came after she announced her candidacy. The rest of her speech was essentially, Trump's a racist, we're the resistance, yada yada yada, but simply calling Donald Trump a racist does nothing for the constituents in Nevada's 4th Congressional District. I mean, I shouldn't have to tell you this, because you're already a politician. So if you're going to be running to represent a group of people, your constituents, then you have to tell them what policies you're going to push for that would improve their lives. Saying Trump is a racist does nothing to improve their lives. It just makes you feel better. So like I did with Stephen Horsford, I actually went to her website as well to see if I could find any more policies. And at face value, it looks like she did list a couple of policies here, but when you read them, most of these points are actually about herself. So for example, under renewable energy, you'd think that she'd lay out a comprehensive plan that she would push for if she did get elected to get America off of its oil dependency and instead move towards renewable energy. But of course, this little headline here is just about Pat. It states, Pat earned a DBA with a focus on renewable energy and is a widely respected speaker on the subject. Okay, gr okay great, but what's her stance on renewable energy? That tells us nothing. Also, when it comes to education, you'd think that she'd maybe lay out some goals for education policy or reform, but instead she states, Pat has served as president of the San Marcos Consolidated School District. Again, that's not what people are coming to your website to find, Pat. They want to know what you think about education with respect to policy. But really, the most telling thing here is healthcare, because she states, quote, healthcare is a right, not a privilege, and we must work to achieve affordable universal healthcare without compromising healthcare benefits for active members of our military, their family members, and veterans. So when you read that, it's clear that Pat really wants you to think that she supports Medicare for all, even though she doesn't. I mean, she even throws in progressive buzzwords words like healthcare is a right and quote universal but really what she's saying here tells us unequivocally that she doesn't support medicare for all because if you did support medicare for all you just state i support medicare for all so clearly everything that we know about pat is that you know she thinks trump is a racist and um she's educated she's a highly respected speaker with regard to renewable energy and she loves to espouse platitude, literally the same platitudes that Hillary Clinton used, but she doesn't really talk about policy very frequently. So I don't really know where Pat stands because all she's given us is platitudes. But if you look at her donors, you begin to get a little bit clearer picture as to who Pat Spearman really is. Pat Spearman took $4,500 from AT&T and CenturyLink. She also took $1,500 from Charter and $1,000 from Cox. She also took $2,000 from United Health Group. And United Health Group is a lobbying firm that's so against the expansion of healthcare that they literally lobbied against Obamacare in 2010 and 2011. So Pat Spearman and Stephen Horsford together, these are the people who are considered Amy Vallela's main competitors in the Democratic Party primary in the 4th Congressional District of Nevada. They decided to jump into the race seemingly for no reason. They don't have any policy that is pushing them to run. They don't seem to really know what the people of the 4th Congressional District of Nevada care about. It looks like they just decided to jump in to stop Amy Valela from winning. I'd say that someone from the establishment probably told them to jump in in order to stop Amy Valela from winning. Now, in raising these objections, I'm not suggesting that they're somehow bad people. In fact, I'm sure that they're lovely people. They seem nice. But Pat Spearman and Stephen Horsford, 
are clearly just puppets of the state Democratic Party establishment. And if I'm out of line here, if I'm incorrect, prove me wrong. Don't take money from a super PAC, Pat and Stephen, and actually endorse policies that a majority of Americans support, like Medicare for All, tuition-free public colleges and universities, but you don't want to do that, do you? Because your donors wouldn't support that. Are you guys going to come out in favor of net neutrality? An issue where the overwhelming majority of Americans, Republicans and Democrats and independents support? Are you going to get out in favor of that and lead the fight? Well, of course not, because you guys have sold out to AT&T and Verizon and whatnot. So Amy Valela is a candidate that the Democratic Party establishment should have bent over backwards to endorse, and they should have done everything in their power to make sure she has everything she needs to win, because if anybody's going to keep that district blue, it's going to be Amy Valela. But instead, they decided to presumably throw a couple of establishment puppets into the race to make sure that the progressive doesn't win. And look, it's not like I'm just jumping to conclusions conclusions here because we see this across the country. Democrats have been doing this. They always back the corporate finance candidates because they think that they're more likely to raise more money. I mean, Amy Valela doesn't take money from super PACs or large multinational corporations. So they want to go with the candidate that's going to keep the gravy train running. That's why they decided to back Pat Spearman or Stephen Horsford. Probably Stephen Horsford is who the National Democratic Party supports, but I take it that the state Democratic Party is really enthusiastic about Pat Smearman. So now is the time that progressives come out and we show that we are a force to be reckoned with. So you can actually support Amy Valela by visiting amyforthepeople.com. If you donate to her campaign, then that will show the establishment that yes, she is viable because she can raise money and she doesn't even have to take dirty money. So if you're deciding to run for Congress, then you've got to show us that you stand for something. But uh, I'm like against Trump. That's not really something that is going to catalyze your base to get out and vote for you. Because guess what? This strategy was tested before by Hillary Clinton. And guess what happened? She lost to a reality TV show star. So if you want to make sure that that district stays blue, support Amy Valela. Otherwise, you're going to get a joke of a representative there. So as you all know, funding for the government runs out on February 8th. So we are facing potentially another government shutdown. Now, you may be wondering how that's still a possibility if Democrats decided, for the most part, to cave. Well, according to a new article released by Politico, in spite of the fact that Democrats have stated their intent to cave, there still is a relatively high likelihood that the government could in fact shut down on February 8th if Congressional Democrats and Republicans don't come to any sort of agreement. As Politico reported on January 24th, when it comes to the upcoming debate, Senate Democrats are willing to drop their demand that Relief for Dreamers be tied to any long-term budget agreement, a potential boost for spending talks, but one that could face opposition from their House counterparts. We're viewing immigration and spending on separate terms because they are on separate paths, Senate Minority Whip Dick Durbin said Tuesday. So you think that if Democrats not only caved in the first government shutdown, but they caved again before the government even shut down for a second time in 2018, why would we even face a possibility of another shutdown? Because Republicans are in control of Congress, they're in control of the White House, so they should just be able to pass a spending bill, right? 
Well, logically, that should be the case, but that isn't the case. So Rachel Bade and Burgess Everett explain, party leaders are already pointing fingers at each other, a discouraging sign for the long-stalled talks that could lead to more short-term funding measures both parties loathe. Republicans say Democrats are divided over whether they can agree to a budget accord without a solution for Dreamers. Democrats, meanwhile, say Republicans are getting nervous about increasing defense and domestic spending by more than $100 billion. Lawmakers are only in session for two days this week before House and Senate Republicans leave town for their annual retreat, kicking nearly all budget discussions into the following week when they'll have only three days to come up with a solution for raising stiff spending caps. Since this fall, Democrats have refused to agree to long-term funding legislation absent an agreement to shield hundreds of thousands of young undocumented immigrants from deportation, but after the shutdown, some Senate Democrats have indicated a willingness to decouple the two items and move forward with a two-year spending accord. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer prefers to handle immigration and spending at the same time, but has not vowed to tank a budget deal that lacks protections for Dreamers. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, on the other hand, has continued to insist the two issues be linked. Democrats are demanding that any increase in defense spending, a key 2018 priority for President Donald Trump, be accompanied by dollar-for-dollar increases in non-defense Democratic priorities. According to Republican sources, leaders are discussing equivalent increases in both, but some conservatives are uncomfortable with such drastic hikes to spending. So, you know how in Washington, D.C., our government is super dysfunctional because both parties can never come to the table and agree to anything? Well, the reason why the government might shut down again is because both parties now have internal disagreements. So, when it comes to Democrats, Senate Democrats have decided to fold completely. They don't even want to try to protect Dreamers in this next round of budget talks. They've decided to fold, but House Democrats, they don't want to fold. They still want to hold strong because they should do that. So, kudos to Nancy Pelosi, I guess, for having a spine, but I don't know how long that's going to last. And then, on the Republican side, they want to increase spending, but of course, fiscally conservative Republicans don't want to go along with what Donald Trump is pushing for, you know, a plan to increase spending. So, here's how this is going to play out. If I had to guess, the parties will probably solve their internal conflicts ahead of budget talks, but when it comes to whether or not Republicans and Democrats can agree to anything, Republicans will accuse Democrats of not caring about the military, since they're not on board with an increase in military spending, and Democrats will fold immediately and not even think twice about doing so, even if it makes them look foolish. So Democrats, even though they're holding strong now in the House, they could fold before then. So we might not see a government shutdown unless Republicans don't resolve their disputes. So they don't really know what they want to do yet, and time's ticking. They're running out of time, and then they're going to go on their retreat, and then they'll have three days to discuss it, making a government shutdown even more likely. So that's why it's still very likely that the government could shut down. But, do you want to know the solution that's being pushed? You're not going to be surprised by it. Well, they are floating, Republicans specifically are floating, another stopgap measure that funds the government temporarily for another month. If you can't even fund the government, then you don't know how to govern and you shouldn't be governing. So the fact that we're even talking about the possibility of a shutdown is absolutely absurd to me. Democrats should have held strong the first time around. 
But, I mean, again, <laughs> there was big talk at first after they voted to reopen the government. Chuck Schumer was saying, well, you know what? The wall's off the table now. And before they even started talking about funding, ahead of the February 8th deadline, Chuck Schumer decided to fold. So basically, they caved twice in a week. These parties are a joke. Why are they governing if they aren't even doing the most minimal thing that's expected of senators and representatives? You can't even pass a funding bill. What are you doing there? It's time to leave. Pack it up and go home. You don't know what the fuck you're doing. You have to keep passing these stopgap funding measures because your own parties can agree. And finally, when they come to negotiate with each other, you have... Republicans, that strong-arm Democrats, they cave immediately, and really, Republicans just have to worry about getting their own party on board. That's what it's all about. This, ugh, I don't even know what to say. I'm speechless, because this is a joke. We should not be talking about another, another government shutdown, but certainly, if the government's going to shut down, there better be a damn good reason for it. I better see Democrats fighting to protect Dreamers, because that's the right thing to do. Donald Trump said that he killed DACA because he wants Congress to pass a fix. Hold him accountable. Why are you not doing that? You had the momentum, and really they squandered it. So going into this next round of negotiations, they already shot themselves in the foot, but they shot themselves in the foot again by caving before they even started talking. I mean, this is just unbelievable. It's a joke. So, Real Time with Bill Maher returned after its 2017 season finale, and I shouldn't do this to myself, but I watched it. <laughs> I watched the last episode, and even though I know I'm going to be disappointed, you know, I used to just really look forward to Bill Maher's program because he would say things that were refreshing, that I think political pundits needed to say, but now... He's basically become one of the hackiest members of the American media. So this week, I was pleasantly surprised to see that he invited a real progressive on the show for the first time in I don't know how long. So Congressman Ro Khanna was there, who actually is a real progressive that supports Medicare for All, that doesn't have a super bag, that actually supports progressives. But Ro Khanna's presence didn't stop Bill Maher from making comments that were just brazenly ignorant. And as a so-called member of the resistance, Bill Maher finally admitted that he's not too down on at least one of the recent policies that Donald Trump decided to implement. So as you all know, last year, one of the last things the Trump administration did was declare Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And Bill Maher admits here, I kind of like what Trump is doing here. While we're near the Middle East, let me ask about a big story that happened while we were off in December. Donald Trump... Today, we finally acknowledge the obvious that Jerusalem is Israel's capital. He said Israel is a sovereign nation with the right, like any other sovereign nation, to determine its own capital. I hate to agree with Donald Trump, and it doesn't happen often, uh, but I do. I don't know why Israel, it has been their capital since 1949. It is where their government is. Uh, they've won all the wars thrown against them. Um, I don't understand why they don't get to have their capital where they want. Really? You don't understand? Oh, I understand there are repercussions. I mean, so, well, first of all, they won, when you win a war, you don't get to take the other side's land, right, under international actually you law. Do. Actually, you do. Under international <laughs> law, you don't well, just get to... Well, especially when they were attacked. They, I mean, the, the country was divided, which they were okay with. They were attacked more than once, and they took land in those wars that they won. 
and there has been peace offers on the table ever since to give part of that land back. But here's the they thing, I mean, Trump says he's going to strengthen American national interest. Now, there are 128 countries, including Britain, France, Germany, India, who voted against us. If we, if we are going to do this, there's a cost. What did we get? What did we get for doing this? I mean, he's the deal maker in chief. What are we getting well, in America? What happened for fi- what happened for the 50 years before? I mean, this has been a fact on the ground for 50 years. I mean, Israel has been a state for 70, I think, right? I mean, it, the, the, it, is the, it is the capital of Israel, okay? I recognize Rose's point that if we're going to be a, 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 an arbiter in this peace process that just declaring this without having, you know, trying to use that as a as a point of leverage uh, in those debates and those discussions might have might have given away a card that we would have held. Now, I don't yeah. think though that I don't think though that you know th- that this is going to fundamentally alter the conditions on the ground there because you know the, the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian government is so collapsed in terms of being an, an effective political force in the process that you know the status quo is going to be the status quo but for the, the problem foreseeable is the future. message that it sent to everyone in the process so it sends a message to the Palestinians that the United States is going to be even more pro-Israel than in the past and it sends a message to the Likud government that you can basically do what you want and so they responded by um, adopting a resolution essentially calling for the annexation of the West Bank right they they passed legislation that would make it much harder to come to any sort of final status agreement on Jerusalem. And they've done all these things that are going to make a two-state solution impossible. That's just it right there. I'm so glad that the panel brought those points up because we've become so unequivocally pro-Israel that we've created a barrier to peace. Because, of course, if there's any negotiations, we're going to want to be involved. The United States won't butt out. And if we have anything to do with negotiations, do you think that Palestine would want to come to the table? Of course not. They'd be dumb to do so because they know that we're not looking out for their best interests. We're looking out for Israel's interests. So, of course, this makes a two-state solution or any type of peace deal that much more unlikely. That's why it's harmful. You can't just declare a disputed territory as one country's capital and expect to still present yourself as a neutral arbiter during negotiations. That's not the way things work, and that's not how things should work. So, obviously, what Donald Trump did is he created a barrier to peace. Now, what Bill Maher also said was really shocking to me. As someone who is a liberal, he defended the idea that when you win a war, you get to take your opponent's land. But that's not true at all. And not only is it factually incorrect and against international law, it's an antiquated way of thinking about the world generally speaking. The so-called right of conquest was abandoned a very long time ago in favor of the assurance that every state in the world would maintain territorial integrity irrespective of the outcome of wars. And this is now codified into international law, not just in the UN Charter, but also in the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928, which says states cannot use war as a means of resolving disputes. And the reason why the entire world decided to move on from that standard is because one, it's just immoral, and two, if you accept that by winning wars you get to take land as part of the reward for winning war, you're incentivizing militarism. And with just how militaristic the United States government is, can you imagine if that was still 
not prohibited under international law, the entire world would be America right now because we'd see nonstop wars being waged to an even greater extent than now. So it's an idiotic assertion for a so-called liberal like Bill Maher to make, and furthermore, it speaks to Bill Maher's profound ignorance when it comes to the Arab-Israeli conflict because Israel has continuously taken more and more land from Palestine. It's not just that they've taken more land after each war, they literally just announced a plan to annex even more territory from the West Bank last fucking week, Bill. Even Donald Trump saw that Israel's continued building of settlements in the West Bank was a problem and he even told Netanyahu to hold off on settlements. So embarrassingly enough, Donald Trump seems to know a little bit more about the Arab-Israeli conflict than Bill Maher, someone who is a member of the resistance who's supposed to be against Donald Trump. Well, here he is agreeing with Donald Trump and presumably knowing less than Donald Trump based on what he said here. But if you thought that that was as ignorant as Bill Maher would get during this segment, unfortunately, it got even worse. How is their making the two-state solution impossible? What's making the two, but what is making the central thing that is making the two-state solution impossible no. is that one party is, is perpetually hostile, no, a coiled snake. They, they, that's they, what's going on. You should, what, go, you should go and see what's happening in the West Bank. If you look at the settlements, if you look at the facts on the ground, the fact that you have basically, instead of a contiguous landmass, you increasingly have these little cantons. Yes. And if you looked at the way that Palestinians, you know, most Palestinians alive today were not born during any of these wars. And so the idea that their lives should be blighted because of them. I mean, if you look at, look at what Americans do when they have to go through a TSA checkpoint, right? They completely lose their shit. And if you imagine doing that for two hours every single day. But this is always what happens. We talk about what, the, what happened as a result. We don't look at the beginning of it. Like the Israelis just put up those checkpoints for no reason. They put up those checkpoints because there was an intifada and they were having bombings every day. A pizza parlor or a bus stop was getting blown up. That's why they built it. No, that's not, not for only, known reason. No, but also because they want to take that land. I mean, they're not putting up the Some settlements for self-defense. Yes. They're, they're putting up the settlements because they want to have greater Israel. And they're going to get it. Some of them they're did, gonna yes. They're going to get it where there's going to be a one-state well, solution. So then the question is, what is that one state? Right. Is it Jewish or is it democratic? Because it can't right, be both. Absolutely. And that is a big problem. But, you know, when so people say, what, like, like the gun is to Israel's head, is, it is a problem. But, but Bill, where are the Yitzhak Rabin's and Shimon Perez's in Israel? I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu has done Israel's cause no service in this country. I mean, what we need is well, people who are... Israel has had leaders before who've talked about their values little, and talked about the two-state solution. It's a little different when you live in that hostile environment. I but think you're a rich person. You should go see what life in the West Bank. I, 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 <laughs> yes, I. First of all, I, you, you don't have to go to understand this. But I'm not a moron. I, I, I can understand. No, but I feel like that. it's hard to really get your head around no. how bad it is unless you see it with your own eyes. I understand that, but but <laughs> Israel you think is they shrink the building new settlements, right? Probably not. But Israel built, uh, gave back Gaza, and what was the result? Did they use? the funds to build schools and hospitals no they they used them to build tunnels to to get weapons in they and they invited hamas into to our, shell, our, shell you, Israel across the border. Have, I mean, Gaza once you have Hamas in, as as the as the power player in the Palestinian uh, movement, you've basically got implacable hostility. 
you basically got, and, and, and we can say some of it's justified because of the Israeli expansions, right. but a lot of it is drive the Jews into the sea, yes. burn them to the ground, and you know, you can't, those aren't, that, that's not a, a, a partnership where you've got people dealing right. from an equitable space. But that's why you don't cut the balls off of the Palestinian moderates, the people right. who are I, running the West I'm, Bank. I have to cut the balls off this discussion, but it was very <laughs> enlightening. Thank you very much, but it's time for new rules, everybody. Okay. Yeah. So Bill Maher says that Israel is always blamed for making a two-state solution possible when one party is perpetually hostile. First of all, it's incumbent on Israel to come to the table and negotiate because they're the ones who are currently violating international law and illegally occupying Palestine. It's on them. They can choose to end this at any time if they decide to stop their illegal occupation, but they haven't done that. Palestine has really no say. And even though nobody would deny that Hamas is hostile, in Israel's 2014 incursion into Gaza, more than 2,000 people were killed, most of which were civilians, and that included 490 children. Not to mention 3,000 Palestinian children were also wounded, more than 20,000 homes were destroyed, and 500,000 people were displaced as a result of Israel's incursion into Gaza. So if you're going to denounce violence, Bill, which you should and we all should, don't conveniently overlook the violence being carried out by Israel. Now, he also states here, Israel gave back Gaza and they built tunnels to get weapons in. Okay, that's true. But they also used those tunnels to transport vital supplies, food. These tunnels, even if they do use them to transport weapons, you could make the case that these are necessary because Palestinians have no control over Gaza. They have no control over imports and exports. Nobody gets in or out of Gaza unless Israel says so. And there's a reason why Noam Chomsky referred to it as the world's largest open-air prison, because it effectively is. So, Bill Maher, I knew that he was very pro-Israel, in fact, arbitrarily pro-Israel, unnecessarily pro-Israel. He can't even be objective at all here. He just, anything Israel does ever is okay. That's, that's his stance effectively. That's been his stance effectively. But that's wrong. However, for having to suffer through Bill Maher's idiotic diatribe, his ignorant diatribe, we got a really great line at the end. So the journalist from New York Times there states, Bill, you're a rich person. You should go see what life is like in the West Bank. And that's just it. You know, it's easy to watch the biased mainstream media and come to the conclusions that they arrive at and to just accept whatever's fed to you by mainstream news outlets. But unless you really dive into the details and take a nuanced approach and try to learn about what's really going on there, then you're not going to learn. And you wonder why the rest of the world thinks we're a joke and disagrees with us and why 128 countries at the UN denounced Donald Trump's declaration of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. It's because somehow the rest of the world figured out that Israel is effectively an apartheid state, but we haven't gotten the memo yet. Bill Maher is towing the line of not just neoliberals, but neoconservatives here. So he should be embarrassed to call himself a member of the so-called resistance, because the resistance, they've shown time and again that they're jokes. They don't they don't really resist Trump where it matters. You know, they're there to condemn him when he says naughty words. But when it comes to the policies, he's doing everything that they want him to do. So, yeah, you know, I don't know what I expected <laughs> from watching Bill Maher. But certainly, I couldn't not speak out about this because Bill Maher, 
as a member of the resistance, you're doing a piss poor job resisting, Bill. Neil Cavuto of Fox News decided to bring on a toupee-wearing billionaire named Bernie Marcus, who is the co-founder of Home Depot. Now, Bernie Marcus decided that he wanted to defend the Republican Party's tax reform plan that they recently passed at the end of 2017, because surprise, surprise, it'll make him exponentially more rich than he already is. But the angle that he chooses to take in defending this tax reform plan is interesting. And we're going to listen to what he has to say. And afterwards, I'm going to tell you why he's full of shit. Bernie, essentially, this back and forth, the Democrats saying, you know, $1,000 is jump change. It doesn't really move the needle much. You say what? Uh, I say that 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 interview you just had is the most incredible thing I've ever heard. I really actually laughed out loud. Uh, You want to talk about somebody who is. Uh, off the charts and doesn't understand reality. That's your last guest. It's Schumer and Pelosi. A thousand dollars is so meaningful. And I, I give you an example, Neil. I spent my life on the floor of the stores at Home Depot. That's what I did. Uh, almost every week of my life, I was in stores all over the United States. And I talked to customers and I talked to employees. And I can tell you that a thousand dollars is more than meaningful. It's it's it could be paying the mortgage. It could be paying for a car repair. It could be paying for a past due bill. These are things that that the Pelosi Schumer group don't have a clue about. That's why they lost the election. It's as simple as that. They are so busy with their elitists in San Francisco and Hollywood and New York City and all these money deals that they go into week after week after week. And Clinton never knew about the real people out there. And that's why they lost the election. And that's why they're going to lose the next election for the same reason. They when they start talking about crumbs to people in America where these are not crumbs, it's lifeline. Okay, so what you just heard right there is something I like to call pseudo-populism or faux-populism. It's rhetoric that Donald Trump also espoused, where as a billionaire, you pretend to care about workers when in actuality, what you're really saying is, give me more money and I'll give money to workers because I care about workers and Democrats don't. So basically, he defends the GOP tax reform plan by saying that these $1,000 bonuses that companies are giving to workers... This is great because $1,000 is worth a lot, and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, they can never grasp that because they're elites. Well, first of all, yes, it is the case that political figures like Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, they're all out of touch. But talk about the pot calling the kettle black. He's also part of the elitist club, not just in America, but in the world because he's a billionaire. He's one of just 2,043 people that have more than $1 billion to his name. So if you want to talk about elitism, he's as elite as it gets, but yet he's claiming that he actually cares about workers and he knows about their struggle. And Democrats just can't grasp how important $1,000 is to just normal Americans. So I agree. Those $1,000 bonuses are really important. However, what's even more important is a permanent wage increase. What's even more important to workers is unionization, sick leave, paid maternity and paternity leave, universal daycare. Those are things, if someone like Bernie Marcus cares about poor people, he should be advocating for. But instead... 
he's boasting about how important these $1,000 bonuses are. Yes, these $1,000 bonuses will undoubtedly temporarily increase the purchasing power of workers, but that's not a long-term fix to the problem that elites in this country like him created, income and wealth inequality, because they're going to take that money, spend it, and it's going to be gone. Yet, rich people like Bernie Marcus, they're going to pocket the money they make off of this tax reform plan, and that won't trickle down. So yes, I'm very thrilled at the prospect of workers across the country getting $1,000 bonuses. That's great. But that cannot compare to a permanent wage increase, and let's be real about it. These $1,000 bonuses serves as nothing more than corporate PR. They're arguing that the tax reform plan is what encouraged them to give their workers bonuses, but really this tax reform plan is something that will be implemented year after year after year. So are they going to continuously give their workers $1,000 bonuses or are they just giving them these bonuses now since they know public opinion for this tax reform plan is in the tank and are they just doing this to improve public opinion? I think we all know the answer to that. So this billionaire has the audacity to say, you know, Democrat elites, they're totally out of touch, but Republican elites like myself, we have our finger on the pulse. We know what Americans want. Oh, really? Well, if that were the case, you'd be vociferously advocating for things like I said, a permanent wage increase. You'd be fighting for a $15 minimum wage tied to inflation. But instead, what he's arguing for effectively is, hey, give me money and I'll throw a couple of pennies to workers. That's what you're advocating for. He's not in favor of a long-term fix. In fact, he has contempt for workers who dare to demand that they actually get paid a living wage. This is how he spoke about the Fight for 15 movement. You know this whole $15 and they went on the streets and they went against McDonald's? Well, you know what? It's happening through the free enterprise. So as you can see, he has contempt for normal Americans. He doesn't care about them like he purports to. He's saying, no, 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 you can't give the money directly to workers. You have to give it to me first, and then I'll give it to workers. (laughs) (laughs) If you care about workers, wouldn't you support just giving them the money directly? It's almost as if this jackass just wants to make himself richer and pretend to care about poor people. This guy has $5 billion, an unfathomable amount of money. You could buy a million toupees and still have money to buy a billion more. You are richer than most human beings, and yet you're still advocating that you should get more money and workers should continue to get crumbs. But you care about workers. It's just that you have to get the money first, and then it has to trickle down to them. Well, with how many trillions of dollars was given to billionaires like yourself, $1,000 isn't enough. If you truly care about workers, why don't you give them a $10,000 bonus? Oh, you won't do that, right? You won't advocate for something that would permanently increase the purchasing power of workers, like a minimum wage increase or unionization, anything that would be a long-term fix, right? Well, of course not. Why? Because this guy is full of shit. So last week, we learned that two governors, one from Montana and one from the state of New York, decided to unilaterally enforce net neutrality via executive order. And this week, 
We've got even more bad news for FCC Chairman Ajit Pai, because California is on the cusp of becoming the first state to enforce net neutrality by passing legislation that mandates it. So according to John Brodkin of Ars Technica, the California State Senate yesterday approved a bill to impose net neutrality restrictions on internet service providers, challenging the Federal Communications Commission's attempt to preempt such rules. The FCC's repeal of its own net neutrality rules included a provision to preempt state and municipal governments from enforcing similar rules at the local level, but the governors of Montana and New York have signed executive orders to enforce net neutrality and several states are considering net neutrality legislation. California may be the closest to passing such legislation after yesterday's Senate approval of SB 460, a bill proposed by Kevin DeLeon of Los Angeles. The bill passed 21 to 12 with all 21 A's coming from Democrats. The bill is now being moved to the state assembly where Democrats have a 53 to 25 majority over Republicans. The bill would prohibit home and mobile internet providers from blocking lawful content applications, services, or non-harmful devices, except in cases of reasonable network management. Violations would be punishable under the state's existing consumer protection laws, which allow for injunctions and financial damages. The California bill would also prohibit state agencies from buying internet service from an ISP unless that provider certifies under penalty of perjury that it will not engage in the activities banned by the bill. So this sends a really strong message that California is not messing around when it comes to net neutrality. Now, to be honest, I don't know if this law will hold up in court in the event it is challenged because Again, the FCC, part of their order preempted states, basically blocked them from passing their own net neutrality rules. So I don't know if this will hold up, but the message it sends is really important. And what's unique is that California is being especially bold because with legislation that's being considered in other states, with the executive orders issued by Montana, and New York's governors, they kind of indirectly mandate net neutrality by not necessarily saying, you know, if you violate net neutrality, you're breaking the law. What they do instead is say, well, we're just not going to give you a contract if you don't abide by the principles of net neutrality. But California is just saying, no, it's completely illegal to violate net neutrality. So I absolutely love this because it's another way that states are fighting back against the FCC. And let me remind you, the FCC is already being sued by, what is it, 21 states? I think it was 17 after they voted to repeal net neutrality. Now I think it's 21. Um, we have governors enforcing net neutrality via executive order. And now states passing legislation basically defying the FCC. It's fantastic. But again, when it comes to the issue of net neutrality, I do really want to encourage people to show up to city councils and demand public broadband because that's one way that you implement a permanent fix to the issue that is net neutrality because if you own the internet if your tax dollars funded directly then it belongs to the people there's nothing internet service providers like comcast and verizon can do to violate net neutrality it's yours and also if you want your governor to protect net neutrality all you have to do is call his or her office and let them know that there's been two cases now where the governor of Montana and New York had decided to enforce net neutrality via executive order. What's your governor's excuse? So it's really important that we keep the pressure on because as the months go by, 
As time passes since the FCC's December 14th, 2017 repeal, they're banking on us losing momentum. They're hoping that we eventually become complacent and stop caring about this issue. But we need to demonstrate that we weren't playing games when we said we were going to fight to defend net neutrality. And we need to let our lawmakers know, the people who represent us both in the national legislature and our state legislatures, that we're never backing down from this issue. We're never going to stop demanding net neutrality, and we're never going to accept no net neutrality as the norm. So I find this incredibly encouraging, but please make sure that if you really truly support net neutrality, you put in the time yourself to make sure that your state protects net neutrality. You can call your governor, your state representative, your state senator, and certainly call who's representing you in Congress. Because the Congressional Review Act, which is a resolution that would nullify the FCC's repeal, it's going to be voted on in the Senate. I don't know when, but it is going to be voted on. And it's going to head to the House afterwards. And it has to pass both the House and the Senate if it's even going to arrive on Trump's desk. Now, yes, ultimately it may fail. He might veto it. In fact, he's probably going to veto it. But that might raise awareness about the issue. So, either way, we have to fight. And I like that states are fighting back. We're not rolling over. You know, uh, we're, we're not just going to take it. Net neutrality has always been the norm, and we are fighting to keep it that way. So, what do you do if you're a multi-billion dollar company like AT&T and you support a policy that the overwhelming majority of the American people rejects? Well, you pretend to be on the American people's side while you simultaneously push for a policy that goes against their desires, and that's exactly what AT&T was recently busted doing. So, according to a Medium post by Fight for the Future, Today, AT&T took out full-page ads in a number of major newspapers nationwide claiming that the company supports net neutrality and calling on Congress to pass legislation, a so-called Internet Bill of Rights. This comes just a day after year-end disclosures show AT&T spent more than $16 million lobbying against net neutrality and internet privacy protections last year alone. At the exact same time that ads went live, congressional staffers reported that they started getting flooded with mysterious tweets using the hashtag NetNewtLawNow, with a message reading, We need real net neutrality, not a CRA that can't pass. Please pass a permanent net neutrality law. If you just search Twitter for the hashtag NetNewtLawNow, you only find a few tweets like this one from the Progressive Policy Institute, a think tank that's been partly funded by, you guessed it, AT&T. If you search for the phrase that's tweeted, you see large numbers of identical tweets which appear to be generated through a paid hashtag campaign geo-targeted at people's lawmakers. AstroTurf efforts like these are just the latest in a long and sordid history of campaigns funded by big telecom companies attempting to create the false impression that there is grassroots support for their terrible positions on net neutrality and consumer privacy. The purpose of these tweets is to spread misinformation. The internet service provider's plan has always been to use the crisis they created by gutting the FCC rules to ram through bad legislation that permanently undermines net neutrality while claiming to save it. But this latest campaign just comes off as a bit desperate. It shows that 
that AT&T's army of lobbyists is scared. The CRA that the tweets mention refers to the Congressional Review Act resolutions that are gaining momentum in both the Senate and the House thanks to the overwhelming cross-partisan public support for net neutrality rules and the massive backlash to the FCC's repeal of them. So this to me just comes off as laughably pathetic. AT&T knows that the American people reject their agenda so what do they do? They pretend to be on our side. They try to dupe people into supporting their bullshit, phony net neutrality laws, which will just solidify what the FCC did. <laughs> I mean, we're onto your bullshit. This is exactly what Comcast and Verizon tried to do ahead of the net neutrality repeal. They were releasing videos talking about how they supported net neutrality. At least Comcast did this. They talked about how they would never block or throttle content, and then suddenly, as the repeal of net neutrality creeped up, they dropped those promises. I wonder why they did that. It's almost as if they're lying to us, and they have a vested interest in repealing net neutrality because they can make billions and billions of dollars in profit off of ripping us off even more than they already do. It's, it's so laughably pathetic. So, here's what we have to do now. We have to show them that grassroots is more powerful than AstroTurf, and we tweet to our elected officials and let them know that we do want them to support the Congressional Review Act. So tweet to your representative and let him or her know to actually sign on to the resolution to nullify the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. Because after the FCC brazenly betrayed the will of the voters in this country, they can't win. Three unelected bureaucrats should not be able to undermine the will of the American population. It's not just that they're going against Democrats, they're going against Republicans and Independents as well. Nobody supports this, the only people that support this are hacks who don't fully understand the consequences of a net neutrality repeal. So AT&T in doing this... I'm actually thankful because, of course, it was inevitable that they were going to get busted, but they just showed us their cards. They showed us that they're willing to resort to the sleaziest tactics imaginable to make sure that their agenda goes through. They want politicians to make it seem as though they support this phony net neutrality bill that hacks who are bankrolled by internet service providers like Marshall Blackburn are pushing, but nobody believes this. So what I love is that they spearheaded this effort they probably spent millions of dollars to launch this astroturf campaign and there's not very many tweets <laughs> the the net the net new law tweet uh the hashtag not very popular so they wasted their money congratulations so look at the end of the day net neutrality activists will win because we have the grassroots on our side and again grassroots is always more powerful than astroturf because astroturf is fake inflated numbers. It's bots. That's what we saw when the FCC opened up their comment process and we saw a bunch of bots flood the FCC comment line saying that they support Ajit Pai's pro-corporate agenda and they support his decision to repeal Title II net neutrality protections. But we learned that that was bots quickly. So these internet service providers are so greedy that they inadvertently undermine themselves. They show us just how desperate they really are, and that just helps our cause. So AstroTurf will never beat out the grassroots because there's more of us and our voices are just louder. You can try to create bots to drown out our voices. You can try to get people on board with your shitty policy, your faux net neutrality protection law that dupes people into thinking you support net neutrality, but nobody's buying what you're selling. We know that you have an agenda that 
will absolutely facilitate billions in profit for you. So why should we trust you? The answer is we shouldn't and we don't. Congratulations, you played yourself. Hey everyone, I am here with Amy Valela. She is running for Congress to represent Nevada's 4th Congressional District. You already know who Amy Valela is. She is a favorite of this show. Amy, thanks for coming back on the program. Thanks for having me on. It's always great to have you. Um, we're always looking forward to updates. And a lot has happened since we last spoke. So I know you come with good news. You were endorsed recently by by an organization that I think we all are excited about. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I have just been endorsed by Our Revolution National, and I am very excited. It really brought it full circle for me, um, as I've stated before on the program, that you know when I was in the depths of grief and just barely starting to get out and figure out what I wanted to do with all the information I had. I went to that single-payer conference in New York City, and uh, that's when I met the amazing Nina Turner, and I remember her really being very inspirational for me and telling me, you know, Amy, you got to dig really deep. you got to dig deeper than you ever thought you had to. You have all the bones you need to go out there and be, you know, a fighting force for change. And, you know, that was the beginning. And uh, the next step I went was, you know, I, w I did go to the Women's March in Washington, D.C. Um, to join up with PDA and uh, our revolution there um, to really push some progressive agenda and really have some great conversations. That really was the beginning for me um, into my stepping into activism. And then to see her again um, at the most recent Our Women's March here in uh, Las Vegas, and then to find out that I've been endorsed by Our Revolution National, it was an amazing thing. It was an amazing feeling. It's been a long journey, uh, even though it's only been a year. <laughs> it feels like a lot longer. Yeah, I bet. Uh, um, that was really amazing for me. And it really, I hope that message that gets out to everyone else is that, you know, we can find strength, meaning, and purpose even in the most darkest moments in our life. We all still have a voice. And we all still have a place at the table and we can be, you know, the catalyst for change, even in its smallest measure. Right. That And that's that's so great to hear. I, I think that, you know, the more I hear about your journey, because I mean, for the most part, I think that I have the whole story together. But seeing how it all really came full circle where you met Nina Turner and now you're being endorsed by Nina Turner as a candidate, you know, it it's really inspiring. And I hope that this really does encourage other people to get involved because if you were able to take something and turn it around and basically dedicate your life for the good, then other people certainly have no excuse. Um, so yeah, that, that's really exciting. So in general, I wanted to get an update on your campaign because as everyone knows by now, Representative uh, Representative Ruben Kiwin is not going to be running for re-election because there was a scandal involving him and sexual misconduct with staffers and whatnot. We won't get into that because I want to make this about Amy and not Ruben. But basically, this is my question for you because my assumption was that as soon as he announced that he's not running, the state party in Nevada should have jumped over themselves to endorse you. So do you feel as though they're embracing you or do you kind of feel as though you're still kind of doing this on your own and you're still not being accepted by the establishment even though you're a phenomenal candidate? You know, that's, that is a good question. Um, 
there, right now, I haven't, there's no a formal endorsement of anyone, but there is a lot of um, people coming into the race. Um, and I am still running on a, a very progressive platform, unapologetically progressive. And I really think that um, this is playing out right now that I'm really the only candidate that's going to be able to not only, you know, be a voice for you know, the 99%, but also the only one probably that's going to be able to keep that seat blue going into the next election. The problem that they have is that many people want to talk about the issues. They want, they want specifics. They don't want to hear anymore that, you know, oh, I'm with you. That's no longer enough. We need to know how are you with us and um, have a very strong platform and be able to be very specific on the issue so that you can reach across the aisle even. When you start talking to people about the issues and you forget about all the rhetoric, you know, that's where people, you know, really you gain like the support of the people that maybe a, a traditional Democrat is not gonna get, be able to garner that support. People are tired of the status quo. It's no longer acceptable, it's no longer enough we have to be fighting for the people. They're looking at, you know, the OpenSecrets.org. They're seeing who is funding those other, you know, candidates. They're going to be looking to see where that money's coming from. They're going to be looking to see where you are exactly on the issues. I think more now than ever in recent history, people know the bills. <laughs> they know what's out there and what's being presented, and they're watching. And that is where they're going to have a severe disadvantage against me because. What I'm not, I'm not beholden and I'm not tied up by my donor base. So yeah, so I've been doing some preliminary research on other individuals that got into the same race as you currently. And look, uh, I always support people running. I think that that's great that people want to get involved. But the problem is that when I see who's running against you, not to name names, I hear a lot about the resistance and they're anti-Trump, but I don't hear much discussion about policy and you've pretty much laid out every single policy issue that you are in favor of you've spoken out in favor of net neutrality one of your opponents took 4500 from AT&T you've spoken out for Medicare for all your opponents haven't said anything just you know we want to defend healthcare awesome i'm glad you want to defend healthcare how do you want to do that? So basically, you've gone through, you've talked about ranked choice voting, you've talked about actual issues that will have a real-world impact, and at the same time, you've also been able to make it clear that you're also anti-Trump. At this point, I think the other people in the race, they've just talked about being anti-Trump. But I want real yeah. policy issues, and I know that you care about policy issues, and your campaign is driven by the people because you're talking to people about the policy issues. So... Can you tell me a little bit about the conversations you've had with people in Nevada and what specific policies they really care about and uh, what you would push for if you were elected? I know that health care is really important in Nevada. Um, it is one of the cornerstones of my campaign. but And I think this isn't just for Nevada, but it's across the country. And, you know, I, I'm not the only one that's running on a platform with Medicare for All that is coming up against, um, you know, other candidates uh, in their races that are now trying to find new ways of massaging the message that I'm really not for Medicare for All. You know, and the, the, the key term now is, you know, I want affordable health care and access. Um, I think uh, one of someone in my district had said that they wanted to find a way to have affordable Medicare and Medicaid for all. <laughs> what? 
Like, I just, I don't know. Um, you know, these are the things that everyone's going to really have to be careful when they're looking at these issues. Um, and I'm being very specific you know, about the issues. We have a, pro a problem with housing, with the shortage of, of affordable housing. You know, we need to be protecting our, our, you know, native lands and also our public lands and making sure that it's not being, you know, sold off to the highest bidder. We need to be fighting for a livable wage, a livable wage now that's tied to inflation. These are things that are really affecting, you know, residents here in Nevada, you know, and, and what's really interesting when a lot of people know Nevada and Las Vegas, where I live, to be this great place to go and have fun. And it's this, this exciting city full of lights and great adventures and whatever other mayhem they're coming for. <laughs> but, you know, if you just drive a few blocks outside of our the, the Strip, you will see all of our homeless. And the, our residents here in Nevada are fighting for a livable wage and all of these wonderful experiences are on the backs of Nevadans. And we have a lot of work here to do in Nevada to ensure that we have a good quality of life for the people that are making those wonderful experiences possible for the rest of the country. Um, and just like everyone else, they're worried about money and politics. I mean, they're worried about their voice and their vote counting. Um, we have a lot of fractures you know, within the Democratic Party in Nevada. I know it's across the, the United States as well. And the way that we overcome the divides that we have within the party, and not so much just for the importance of the party, but for us to be able to get into office and to be able to make changes is to talk about the issues and to unite people across party lines. It, you know, get the independents out there voting for me as well and, uh, and be able to be successful in this candidacy. You know, not every... I hear a lot of people that are always asking, you know, well, why aren't you running, you know, on other party lines and things of that sort. Um, it's really not possible in a lot of states. And, uh, and I'm just, I'm a fighter. I'm going to keep on fighting <laughs> to ensure that we have someone that's really representing the people here in Nevada. Right. And one thing that I really like about you is that you make sure that you're inclusive of everyone. And, you know, when it comes to Democratic Party establishment figures, they make it clear that they're inclusive when it comes to demographics and gender and sex. But you also make it clear that you're inclusive of um, individuals across party lines. So you are trying to get independents to support you as well. Um, right. You support ranked choice voting. So that way, yeah. if somebody wants to vote for Greens, they can do that, but not spoil their vote, as many people will say. Um, so can you talk about why you think it's important that the Democratic Party, generally speaking, embraces independence and even Green Party members? Well, I know in Nevada, um, we had, there was an article that just came out that there has been um, a big loss of uh, Democratic voters. Um, they've been exited. And, you know, winning the primary is no longer just the only concern uh, going into this next election. What they need to understand is that, you know, what the Democratic Party, um, you know, here in recent history was supposed to represent was the working class. And when you start, you know, um, alienating people and alienating people just based on what, you know, what party they're in, you're going to lose in the general. And that is, in the district I'm in is in a flip district. It has been, you know, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican. Um, and, you know, I think it's important also to note, uh, Mike, that, you know, when we're talking about issues that affect people, 
It doesn't matter what's behind your name. If you're a Democrat or Republican or independent and your child's sitting in a hospital and, you know, they're not able to get the care that they need because of insurance status, it really doesn't matter. And I don't know any of us that we pass someone on the street in need of help and say, well, I need to know what party you're with before I, I help you, my fellow, you know, community member, my fellow, my brother, my sister. We are each other's keepers. And it doesn't matter what's behind your name. We have real issues that need to be fixed in this country. We've got issues with immigration, with families who are going to be torn away from the life that they've known. We've got, you know, people in prison for uh, nonviolent, you know, marijuana convictions. We need to reform that system. We have people that are in need of, you know, just the basic necessity of life that we are not getting addressed right now sufficiently with our current representatives in the House and in the in the Senate. So when, when people want to talk about party, I'm more interested in, in you and the average person that's sitting out there. How are we going to help you? Because I'm tired of seeing people cry. And I did a video not long ago where I really wanted to put this out there to the public that, you know, yes, I, I am hurting and I'm in pain and I cry my tears. But there are millions of other Americans out there that every day are shedding their own. And, and even though they're not for the same reason that I shed mine, you know, pain is pain. And it really doesn't matter what party you're associated with. We have a duty to ensure that we are protecting each other and being each other's keep, keepers in this country. Right. And I think that you brought up something really important. And I was hoping that you could... Basically, send a message to dreamers because right now, if I were a dreamer trying to put myself in their shoes, I would feel incredibly demoralized because you vote for a party that says they're going to represent you in Congress and they're, they're not. They're caving. So can you explain what you would do to fight for dreamers in Congress? And you know, if you want to just add anything that you want to say to dreamers, because I know right now they're feeling very discouraged and you were in a situation like that too. Very different, but I mean still... You know, um, you were in a very depressed state of mind. So what, what can you say to them? Don't give up because there, there are many more Americans out here that, that understand your plight and they want you and they want to embrace you in this country. We're going to keep fighting. If I get into Congress, that will be definitely, I, it should be taken care of before I get there. Democrats need to have a <laughs> backbone. We need to say enough is enough. We're not budging on this. We need to stand up. That's 800,000 lives that are on the line right now of families that are going to be torn apart. And, you know, I don't even like to call them dreamers. They are Americans. Exactly. So when we're talking about that fight, we're with you. I'm with you. And I will do anything I can in my power to help you. I'm, I'm very active out here. I'm trying to, to support in any way I can um, just being a civilian, but in office. I'm going to fight, just, not just for dreamers, but for anyone who is going through those type of circumstances. We need to have true justice in this country. And, you know, that goes down to economic. It goes down to racial justice, LGBTQIA justice. We need to have the Democratic Party as a whole needs to embrace those fights again and be on the forefront of that fight. And not just in generality, start being specific. When I talk about health care, I am talking in very specific terminologies. You know, um, for instance, let's let's just say in the LGBTQIA. You know, when have you ever heard someone come out and say, you know what, um, that's that's elected? Very few. 
that, you know, not only going to fight for Medicare for all, let's take it a step further. Gender reassignment. That is not cosmetic. That should be included. It is necessary medical treatment. PrEP. You know, that should be covered just as we cover Viagra. I mean, these are the type of, like, specifics that we need to be talking about. That's how you hold the people that are running against you, their feet to the fire. Just how much are you with us? You know, I don't need you patting on me the arm and saying I'm with you. I need action. I need you to do what you are elected to do, and that's to represent the people in your district and in America. And that means everyone. But, Amy, the Republicans, they're really scary. Like, I don't know if you've seen them in Congress, but you're saying this now. But, um, you know, the Democrats in Congress, they've shown that, you know, they're willing to back down because Republicans might say something mean about you. They might try to, you know, they might try to smear you and say that you care more about dreamers or the LGBT community than our military, for example. So how do you how do you fight Republicans in Congress, how do you fight Donald Trump? How do you combat their propaganda with the truth? I know that's a broad question, but just generally speaking, <laughs> I, I, I just want to demonstrate because I know that you're not afraid to stand up to Republicans. So how do you no. do that? How do you effectively stand up to Republicans? You know, I think it's very important that you're constantly communicating with people in your district and that you know you have your district, first of all, standing behind you, which means that you're in constant communication with the people that you're representing. And then when you're in, when you're in, you know, on the floor, you're not backing down. I'm not scared of, of being called a name. I mean, I've gotten a lot of that since I've been pretty much out there and very prolific in what I'm saying. Um, that doesn't that doesn't get to me. To me, it's no different than when I was in a boardroom. I mean, fighting for what I needed to have done as a CFO. You know. This is part of the job, and if you cannot and you do not have the backbone to stand up for what's right and stand up for the American people, you do not belong in Congress at all. Quit. Drop out. Do not run again, because that's what we need. And, and you know, it's a lot easier to stand up when I don't have to answer to corporate donors or to special interests or to lobbyists. That's I'm it. answering to the people. So... Um, I'm going to be more afraid to come back and not have represented the people in my district than to I'm be more afraid of that than anyone, what they have to say to me on the floor um, or, or in Congress. That it just, that is where my, that's who I'll be beholden to because uh, I won't get elected again. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, what's unique about your campaign is that you're actually funded exclusively by the people. I know you don't yeah. have a super PAC. Uh, I don't know what your average contribution is, but I would imagine it'd be like twenty seven dollars. Right. Do you have that data? Uh, it's a little it's less than that, actually. OK, but we've had just in the last quarter, we had three thousand over three thousand three hundred individual donors donate to my campaign. That's amazing. So, That's amazing. And I think overall, it's been it's been almost four thousand donors since my campaign began. Wow! So we have had a huge amount of support. You know, and every little bit helps. Um, we are really hitting the ground gun running. We've got some um, amazing people that have joined our team um, that have come on board that are helping us. You know, really take this campaign to the next level. We've had over. Um, 500 people sign up to volunteer, um, wow. uh, not only in Las Vegas, but across the nation. And we're getting ready to start that, you know, the, the, uh, the ground game. And we're going to be calling on everybody that's already signed up for volunteer to get out there and let's get started and let's really get to work. Um, so, and right now, and again, if anyone 
is able, we could use all the help we can get right now. We are um, right now bringing on our uh, field director and uh, any little bit of money they, they, that people can donate helps keep, you know, our field staff in the, in, on the ground, you know, a day longer and get the materials printed. Um, and they can go to bit.ly forward slash um, give Amy. So any little help does because we are just doing um, grassroots. Um, I've actually gotten some pushback from that from some of the media that, oh, you know, I, I think one of the uh, reporters actually said, well, I can't even say her name. <laughs> and like the person reporting was like, oh, you mean Amy Valella? <laughs> you know, yes. And, and he's like, because, you know, grassroots campaigns, they just can't win. We have to prove them wrong. Yeah. I don't need to take money from corporations and big donors in order to do this. If we all pull together, because we're all in this together, we have to start proving them wrong. That's how we make change. That's how we open it up to get ranked choice voting. That's how we open our, our democracy up so that it's more of a true representation of the people. But I need all of you. I need everyone to help and like pitch in and help us get to that next level so that we can continue fighting this. Nevada is going to be a very important state. There's a lot of people looking to see what happens in my district. And right after my, my election, you know, two more years, then we've got the, you know, the, the election for the next president. It is so important right now. Um, this is an important state, and it's an important race. Absolutely. And I know that uh, your, your website is amyforthepeople.com, correct? Yes, it is. Okay, tell us when your primary actually does occur. Do you, do you know the date of that? It's June 12th. Okay. Early starts at the end of May, um, and I, we've only got. I mean, it sounds like it's a long way away, but it's it's moving fast. It'll we've creep got up quickly. Momentum, yes. And I'm really going against some um, pretty well-funded, um, you know, opponents in this race, and um, so I'm going to need all the help I can. We've already, you know, done a lot of work, and we have a lot of momentum going. So. We're just trying to get that extra push to keep that going and surpass where we've been so that we can now start really hitting that ground because that's the way we're going to be able to to win this is by getting people that have become disenfranchised, getting them back involved and knowing you there is someone that you can vote for. There is somebody who will listen, who will let you be an active participant in the process even after she's elected. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, that's something I really would love to see. It's more people having monthly town halls, hearing from people within the community, and having them get involved in this process and explaining what's in the bills and getting input. I think that's going to change uh, what's happening in America, even even during this, this administration. Um, and it isn't just resisting. We need to get people in there that are actually starting the movements, being, you know, speaking out to all their constituents and getting the movement starts for other bills that we can start, you know, presenting when we do have a change in the presidency. But that, you know, it isn't going to happen just overnight. We have to start on it now. We have to start really messaging on progressive values and ideas so that when we do have an opportunity to have them heard on the floor, that we have the momentum already built to have these bills passed in legislation. I'm so glad that you understand that because <laughs> one thing I heard about Bernie Sanders bill when he introduced the Medicare for all bill was that why would he introduce this, you know, when Republicans are in control of all branches of government, he's just posturing. No, you need to build coalitions right now. So when you take right. back power, then you've already put in the work. So thank you so much for saying that because 
you're one of the few people that are running for Congress that knows the importance of this. And it's so refreshing to hear that. So before we go, is there anything that we need to know about your primary with regard to whether it's open or closed? Any unique registration deadlines that people should meet if they want to vote for you? Um, anything important? Well, I know the last time that, that uh, we have our primary when you're um, registering to like change your party or uh, registering you know to become a democrat i think you have till the middle of may mm. so we really need to get out there and and start getting people to get out to vote um you know it's so important and i know a lot of people are very disenfranchised with the political system but we won't be able to have, make change until we get people in office that are willing to be forces to be reckoned with on those issues that that's where we have to start and then we we can really you know go forward and be very um you know progressive on these issues but we have to get people in office that are able to start that momentum and to make those changes incrementally um so we need people to get out get out there and help us get out the vote you know get them registered get them you know standing behind us you know in solidarity you know we need volunteers we definitely need donations um, it's very hard and you know a lot of people are like well May is really far off or June's really far off no the work starts now yeah. you know I need I need to be out there on the ground um, they haven't had a chance to get their teams together this is our opportunity to get out there and really hit it hard and and uh, and be you know actually ahead of the game and uh, and be out there getting the message out there so it's very important that we have support um, all the progressive candidates um, but you know, I definitely hope people will support me in my run, and uh, we're really gaining some momentum, and it's getting a lot of coverage, which is really good for the issues. Um, it can be hard sometimes, you know, talking about what, what I've been through, but um, it really is opening doors and opportunities um, for a lot of uh, press and media coverage across this nation and getting people to understand why it's so important to be involved. All right, well, that's perfect. Hey, you guys heard it there from Amy herself, amyforthepeople.com. Uh, if you could even donate just a dollar, anything helps. So sign up. Uh, you can volunteer. Uh, and let's make sure that we get her in Congress because, as you've heard, there's no doubt she's going to get in there and actually fight for us. And she has a spine. Surprise. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> amyforthepeople.com. Well, that's all I got for you guys. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Big shout out to my guest, Amy Valela. Thanks for coming back on the program. And as usual, before we leave, I want to send a huge thank you to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors for supporting the show. Your support is absolutely crucial, uh, and I, I truly appreciate your generosity. So if you'd also like to support the show, you could ch check out the links down below. Hopefully you guys enjoy the show. So uh, yeah, I will see you all next week. Take care.